0: Today, on an all-new episode of the Enneagram Journey. Shame, boatloads of shame.
1: Day after day, more of the same. Blame,
0: Blame. please lift it off. Please take it off. Please
2: make it stop. Cape Cod for our honeymoon. It was beautiful. There's a, the most romantic sunset in the continental U.S. or something like that, you know, whatever. So we go to it. We've been married for four days or something. Didn't know the Enneagram.
0: That good, huh?
2: It was great. great. It was cloudy. It was a very cloudy sunset. But I said the most romantic thing I had to offer at the world's most romantic spot, which was... It's so embarrassing. We should use this time to set some one, three, and five year goals for our marriage. I've been thinking Kenland? Kendom. Mm-hmm. Kendom. Kendom Land. Kendum. Kendum.
1: Kendum land. Oh. land of. Land the, of the free and the men.
2: Right. Well, this place Kendum is. Land. Really great. And the Kens really are just better at ruling than the Barbies ever were.
1: Well, we just took patriarchy and, you know, made a
0: patriarchy. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well,. I was thinking, I'm ready to be your long-term, distance, low-commitment, casual girlfriend, if you'll still have
1: me. you just hold on for one second? Oh, okay. Sublime! Guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman, it was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I get back in my car and I'm driving to work and all of a sudden it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me, not a single one of them were curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out and so they judged everything and they judged everyone. And I realized that they're underestimating me. <sighs> Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions. You know, Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? <laughs> <laughs> which I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to 16 when he passed away.
3: Welcome to the Anagram Journey Podcast with the Anagram Godmother herself, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's episode is Sublime. Today's guest is Mallory Wyckoff, who, among many other things, she's an Anagram Three, a writer, a speaker, and a spiritual director. They're going to talk about shame, her journey finding out she's a three and not a one, curiosity, and much, much more. Before that, though, let's talk about the four mantras. L Team references the four mantras constantly. Show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and don't get attached to the results. You know what would be a, a good time to focus on these? The upcoming holidays. So, Saturday, December 9th, L Team will be hosting a one day workshop with Suzanne and Joe on the four mantras and the holidays. You can get tickets to join us at the Micah Center, or you can register to join us online. Visit Life in the Trinity for more information and to register. Saturday, December the 9th. See you there Four Mantras in the Holidays with Suzanne Steville. As always, thank you so much for your continued support of the anagram Journey podcast, Suzanne and Joe, and Life in the Trinity Ministry. Click on the link in the show notes to learn more about LTM programming, the table, the cohort program. And also, uh, if you can, donate to support the ministry and the scholarship program. And now, it is time for Suzanne and Mallory.
4: It was so great to meet you when we were in Malibu and to have an opportunity. That dinner kind of turned into Enneagram talk, which happens a lot. And it was very interesting to have everybody on the central triangle of the Enneagram at the table. Joel and I are doing more and more talking about that central triangle and the lines between 369 and what that means and the complexity of looking at that. I am discovering that over the years I've said some things offhandedly, like 369s are the core numbers of the Enneagram, the numbers on which the other numbers depend yeah. that's a very big sentence for me to have not taken seriously enough and so one of the things that kind of kicked me off for that was being at a table with uh, a three a six and a nine all who could articulate well their differences and where they land
3: one of the things that you said over the years that i think is just really 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 true And uh, of course, Mallory, you can contribute uh, to this (laughs) is that it seems that they, they go to their other numbers more often than the rest of us do They're you know, three to six and nine and so on more than I do as a seven going to five and one or you as a two going to four and eight.
4: You think that's true Mallory for you?
2: I definitely have become more aware of of what it looks like for me in stress to look more like mine mm-hmm. and to live. I think about it when I'm living much less consciously and just kind of reflexively than it then. Um, I tend to, to go there, particularly when it gets to the points of kind of confusion around the things I want to pursue or do, mm-hmm. uh, that overwhelm will happen pretty quickly. I can go into this kind of hypo arousal, almost freeze state, which is so different than my regular mode, which is get things done right. And and do as much as you can, as quickly as you can. And then all of a sudden <laughs> here I am, this kind of a creature going, what do I even want to do? And that's a very, very uncomfortable and times even frightening place to uh, to be. And I've I've spent a lot of time, you know, re- reflecting on and, and seeking to understand kind of that that pattern in myself and and how and why it developed and and getting quicker at at identifying it when it does surface.
4: It is so interesting to me that you brought that up because, as everybody knows, Joe is a nine. And when he is doing his thing as a pastor, he slips right into three and it's seamless because that's the thing he's prepared for since he was 14. It is very confusing to me to watch him be in nine and then be in three because they're very different numbers. Very, very different. I can tell by your work that you are a goal setter and a goal achiever. And I can imagine that in that nine space of, I I don't even know what I want to do. That must be very disconcerting, I would think. But it can also be a wake-up call. So it could be like a red flag for you to know that you need to, okay, something's wrong, and I need to settle down Mm -hmm. and figure out what to do. And I, I think it's possible, and I've never said these words before, so this is new, Joel, I know you might, Say, I don't think that's true and do if you don't think it's true. But I think the move back to your core number from stress or security is faster than the move to your stress or security number. Did I say that correctly? You're frowning.
3: No, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about it. That would make, I think that's a good thing.
4: I think it is too. And I think it's a thing. What do you think, makes- Mallory?
2: Yeah, I feel like what happens for me is it, it, it goes back to if I'm kind of coming back to my the type that I've I've lived as. There's that part and there's also in coming back to it, there's this deepened awareness of my being beyond that that happens in coming back to it. That it's it's I'm I'm just what what it feels like is i'm more quickly identifying that that mask or or the story that i've been living Mm -hmm. or that that path that i've i've worn down and and again the uh, shifting into a much more conscious place and going oh right okay all this is happening here while i've been moving around so quickly and uh with this kind of frenetic energy and worried about getting things done Mm -hmm. Hey, how do I actually want to respond here? And oftentimes that does mean pulling on that three energy. And other times it means consciously, you know, living into and pulling on other energy available to me, you know, from these other, other types and ways and places. Uh, so that, that's what it feels like to me. And, and it's interesting even to think about, use that language of like coming back to you, cause it does feel like coming home but almost like the home away home, where when you return home, it looks different than it did before, yep. that that fits my experience. Wow, that is
4: very well said. What do you think about that?
3: In my experience, the better I'm doing in general and the more work I'm doing across the board, whether it's Enneagram or anything else, let me back up just a little bit. Our mutual friend, Luke Norsworthy, I would look up to him a lot. I th- that's a guy who... Uh, we're about the same age. We're both sevens. We're both married to ones. He's done so much work. Both girl dads. Yes, yes, that too. Uh, except, except I do have, I got J man as well. You do. <laughs> um, by doing the work, you get to have the some of the tools that you need to not go to one. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I can when I'm on top of things and doing life to the best of my ability and everything mm-hmm. in my seventh space. I've got my one tools.
4: Mhm. That's exactly what Mallory said. Yeah,
3: and then so then when I, um when I'm off the beam if you will, mm-hmm. you know if you don't have someone to some accountability or something like that, mm-hmm. you don't even realize how you've just been slowly sliding further further down the health uh yeah, line path line until bam, all of a sudden I'm in one mm-hmm. and so it did take a lot longer to get there mm-hmm. instead of Bring one to seven mm-hmm. or just completely leaving seven and going to one. yeah
4: I too I'm kind of embarrassed to say this the two of you may not experience this but I'm just gonna go ahead and say it anyway i I sometimes I go to eight in stress and sometimes when I'm unhealthy and I go to unhealthy eight, I, I'm plenty happy to just be there for a little while.
3: Oh yeah it like, there's it very feels
4: great to me to just be strong and kinda of angry about things mm-hmm. and determined and know what I want and
3: I wonder if that's true for every number when they're just really there. There's almost like a a gratifying justification mm-hmm. of being in that space. Yep, I agree. You know, when you're in an eight and you're you're worked up and angry. Yeah. And my mine is also so mine's to one where I'm worked, worked up and, and angry. angry.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Not Mallory though. She's <laughs> laying on the sofa reading a good book. <laughs>
3: Angry, but not worked up,
2: <laughs> and, and maybe at my best, like not berating myself for not getting something done in that moment. Yeah. Instead of being restful.
4: Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't berate myself for acting like a bitch either. <laughs> but I go to unhealthy eight. So that's not good. <laughs> well, I just never dreamed we'd be opening with that conversation. Well, we never say, know. We just,
3: we just jumped in it. And so I wanted to do a small little reset. Yeah. And uh, Mallory, tell everyone. Who you are a little bit about yourself you know about the girls the whole nine yards you know speaking of people that have girls
2: (laughs) i do have two girls they're the best yeah you know my work takes so many forms and kind of always has but the language i've been kind of sitting with lately is that in all the different forms of of my work i really think at the core of it is uh, that I create spaces and content that help people access themselves and their spirituality with curiosity, honesty, and courage. So that might look like you know working as a spiritual director, sitting one to one with folks. That might look like preaching, teaching. It might look like the peace building work that I do with a, a large global nonprofit. It, it uh, workshops that I lead. Um, any number of things. So the the form kind of kind of varies. But ultimately, that's that is what I'm seeking to do is really create those kinds of spaces where people can uh, again, access themselves, come awake to themselves, and live more fully and freely from those places. and i and I use that language of you know curiosity, honesty, and courage, particularly because so much of my work and and my training and and the areas in which I tend to think about a lot are around you know spirituality and faith. And it's very difficult to find spaces where you can access those things and yourself and do so without either your own internal kind of shame kicking up or or fears let alone that of others kind of being projected onto you and so anytime i can carve out a space for folks to get to do that i i'm i'm really grateful for that so it's a little bit about my my work i i wrote a book that came out about a year ago called god is which you know i, I imagine will Talk about a little bit more, but thinking a lot about uh, the ways that we think about uh, the divine and how that informs and is connected to the ways that we think about everything and everyone else, ourselves included. So, I spend a lot, a lot of time in that space. And most importantly, as you named, I—I'll uh, say two things. One, I'm a Floridian. That's just a thing about me. I'm—I'm a, I'm a Florida woman. <laughs> <laughs> for better and for worse, mm-hmm. um, I'm here, and I've got two little girls, Olive and Ivy. And particularly Olive, um, she she's just about to be seven, but she came into the world and broke mine open, and is is the single biggest catalyst for even and even I think why the Enneagram has been particularly so helpful for me and giving me such a framework and language for understanding and, and navigating my inner landscape. Uh, And, and her coming and and making me a mom and then particularly who she is and her personality. I'm just forever, forever grateful to her for that and continuing to do so.
3: Is Tim into the Enneagram? Do we, do we know his number? Is that a.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Tim is my, my husband. So he's a seven. And the best way that I could describe uh, us to people is that when we first met, I was uh, just starting senior, uh, senior high school. He's about five years older. Um, he was a camp counselor. I was a student. It's a little, you know, um, but we went to camp. It was church camp, and there was this uh, minister who you can imagine at church camp. There's a lot of hype, and his his lesson was on whatever you can imagine and dream. It's too small. God can do something bigger. So really go there in your mind. You know getting kids all riled up. And so one of Tim's in my first conversation was about that. And he said, oh, so, you know, when, when that guy was talking, what were you imagining? And I was like, oh, Tim, I, (laughs) it's ridiculous (laughs) to say now, but I'm like, I was embedded as a photojournalist with a tribe in Kenya. And I had been living with these and among these folks for years and earned their trust. And I'm telling their stories and doing humanitarian relief. And I'm just like going on ad nauseum about this, you know, fantasy world that i was going to create and um <laughs> and then i stop and i say and what about you and he goes oh um i was jim carrey <laughs> and that was his like biggest thing he could imagine and i just feel like we haven't really changed all that much <laughs> from the moment and that that story uh and that that is a good description of kind of who we are and how we fit together
3: that story is awesome it- <laughs> the story that you shared with us. So will you tell it about you going to the, know your number? Oh my gosh. I love, <laughs> I'm going to do a little bit of spoiler just cause I, I've got it written down. How can I make sure people know I already know the anagram and that I'm not new to it. Like they are. <laughs>
4: it's such you know, a start. three thing to say. It is such a three thing to
3: say, but it's also what I love to. It's a vulnerable story to tell. Like yeah, that is not. Is. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I know I sent that to you all. And I thought they're definitely going to ask about this because it is <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous and extreme and so accurate and and true. Yeah. So I had started, I think it was really when I started my training to become a spiritual director is when I first started engaging the Enneagram and reading some different books. And for a while, I kind of kept going back and forth between the three and the one because you know the behaviors can look similar at times, but really then starting to, to land on that, that three energy, but, you know, behind the behaviors and so forth. And so, and, and at that time, there were not a lot of people around me hardly at all who were really talking about the Enneagram, not like it, it is now where it's a, it's a almost, you know, a thing you talk about in a first or second conversation with so many folks. And so um, then I, I am noticing other people are starting around me to be interested in it. And then I, I went to a know your number conference that you were helping to lead through at a church in Nashville where I was living at the time and I remember walking in <laughs> immediately and just having this thought you know and it was an interesting moment because so many of our thoughts just go so quickly and you can't kind of spot and identify them I mean, but this one was just so clear and so ridiculous but it was okay how can I make sure that when I walk into this room full of hundreds to people that they know that I've already been studying the Enneagram and that like they're coming to know their number, but I already know my number. And how do I like work? How can I slip that in casually to conversation? <laughs> so I'm not just another, you know, bump on the pew like they, are. and, um, and, <laughs> and I remember having that thought it was, it was throughout the day going like, you know, really reflecting on it more. And then, um, later that, that day when a friend came up and, and she was, this was kind of her first entry point into it. And she said, Oh, I'm thinking I might be a a two, you know, what are you and everything in me wants to, you know, to pull on that energy from earlier and say, and make sure she knows, well, actually the book that I was, I was reading just yesterday, you know, like I want to lean into that so badly. And I, I remember, I, and I think you had, you had been talking at that point, Suzanne, about like the, the snap kind of stop notice, ask, and pivot. Yeah. And I just tried to do that really quickly. And instead of going into all that BS, it was just like, I think I'm a three. And it took so much energy to just say that and not to add, not to add more and, and kind of center myself in that moment and respond from really that the shame management system that I had had developed, because that's ultimately what it was about. It was this desire that uh, if I don't come into that room and make sure everybody knows that I know something about this well then shame is right. I'm just a bad little girl. I mean, that's ultimately what's happening inside of me, right? In that, in that moment. And it took a lot of energy to respond in a different way. Um, and I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. So I, I don't, you know, I share it maybe as a positive moment, but also a continually like vulnerably acknowledging it, it takes a certain level of en- energy and, and uh, conscious effort. Yeah, it takes a lot.
3: I love it. Will the two of you um, talk more about the difference in three and one. That's a big, you know, with all the questions that we get sent in, that's a big question that we get a lot. And so for you to have lived it and experienced like that journey of am I one, am I a three, I am a three and you being the anagram Godmother, it'd be a great, a great help to all of us.
4: Great. Well, we did. that's a lovely opportunity for both Mallory and me. When you talked about First learning the Enneagram and working to discover if you were a one or a three because the behavior is often the same. Would you expand on how you would describe the same behavior in both numbers? Because you would do it differently than I would do it since I'm not either number.
2: Yes, and the best way I can articulate it is through a story. So a friend of mine who has lived as a one, uh she and I were speaking at a conference together and then we were driving home afterwards and I am uh I am in in my head and in my feels about how I did and I'm kind of berating myself. Oh, I don't think I I I did well with this part. I wish I would have said that differently. She's next to me driving the car, doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost some of the exact same criticisms, but it was very clear to me that the reason I was worried about how I had performed is it was very externally motivated. I was worried about how everyone in that room perceived me and whether they thought I had done a good job and did they think I was worthy. I mean, really, that's kind of just the deepest heart of it. Right. Right that did not matter to her she she was not interested in how everyone in the room perceived her she was interested in whether her actions in that moment aligned with her own standards that she had set for herself about how she would she would be in that moment, and she felt like she had fell short of it. And so even our language was was kind of similar and certainly the behavior of some of that critical piece. But the energy behind it looked really different. And, and that I, I feel is is at least one of the ways that i've I've seen the distinction between these two types, yeah, that's very helpful.
4: One of the things I know for sure about threes is they want people to want to follow them, but their motive is really good. And it's because healthy threes think think they can help you make your dreams come true if you mm-hmm. will just follow them, that they can lead you to that place. And I think ones are much more concerned with their own journey, their own rising, their own avoiding the voice. So, as you're pointing out, so much of that is internal and not external. And for ones to be in leadership positions means that they intuitively think that they will be as judged as they judge other people. Not out loud necessarily, but the, because of the way they think. I wonder if you would say, Mallory, that your way of judging. Is whether or not something is effective and efficient, <laughs> and a one's way of judging is whether or not it's absolutely correct, mm-hmm. and those are two very different things.
3: Low hanging fruit from the teaching that I'm remembering now also about uh, the cutting corners. Yeah, like for ones, there's no, there's no cutting corners, right. and they're like, we can, we can cut this corner. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah what's the other option? Like, why, why would you not <laughs> if you can get there faster? <laughs> Why even my husband and I were just running a few days ago and he made sure that he followed the sidewalk and I just cut the corner and I just expected him to follow. And it's kind of like, I mean, you know, it's just, it's going to save us five seconds and this all adds up, right? (laughs) Yep. You're gonna, you're gonna, gonna get there faster.
4: Yep. Yep. Well, how do you feel about people and situations that slow you down? (laughs) Um. This is a shame-free zone to answer that question. Right. Right. You're just teaching. You're just teaching here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've never known a shame-free zone internally, but I appreciate you offering it externally. <laughs> yeah. I like my, my worst nightmare is to is several small children and dogs standing in front of me and not letting me move. Like I'm just trying to get from A to B, and then I, I that physical experience. Of being halted is is um it, it's a physical depiction of what happens internally when something or someone gets in my way. And so I think about this often in my relationship with Tim, my husband, because he is a seven and we both have this energy of like we we wanna, we wanna um we're seeking out different things, whether it's an opportunity or an adventure, whatever it may be, but like that energy is moving, it's it's moving forward. And that works really well. We've often said we'd be great, a great contestant, um, on the amazing race. We just feel like if we could combine our energy, we could really do well. The problem is not when that energy goes against each other, right? <laughs> Cause it's going to go against, but that if it turns on each other, then there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of energy there that, that happens. So yeah, I don't, I don't mind when people are doing their own thing. Um, it's just when it interferes with, with, my way or the thing that I want to I want to get done that's that's really challenging
4: it's been really interesting to me over the years to watch threes and listen for inefficiency that's just inefficient they could have done that so much better there's no reason for this line to be this long like person after person after person who is a three sees based on efficiency and I intuitively know that they're not totally pleased with me (laughs) because I don't
3: this was a long time ago, I don't know, a year ago or something. We're not huge meme people, anagram meme people. But we are like, all right, man, let's get on the bandwagon for a week. And so the, for the first nine days we did memes for each of the nine numbers and we asked Laura for help with the for the day three and anagram threes. And it was the Bernie Sanders, I'm once again asking you, uh, meme. Do y'all know do y'all recognize that? I do. Okay. Uh, or he, I guess he came on a thing and I think he's oh, was asking for money all the time. something, maybe for donations or something for president, mm-hmm. I don't know. And Laura's like, Laura said, I'm once again asking you to move faster. <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was the line. It was yeah. so great.
4: Uh huh. Uh huh. It is interesting to me how much grace just comes with the Enneagram. Because you're so much faster than me. You think faster than I do, and you walk faster, and you do everything faster than I do uh, except build relationships.
3: (laughs) I build them fast enough.
4: (laughs) But because of my age and uh, a few things that go along with aging, I am consistently saying to Joe, I don't want people to have to wait on me. I feel like I'm holding everybody up. I like, it is shame filled for me to be slower. And then I just spiral pretty fast into, well, I wonder if if my time's up and, you know, stupid things.
2: I think about like, I might get frustrated in a moment like that, Suzanne, where if something I feel like isn't happening fast enough and there may be a, a judgment that happens in that moment, but most of the energy that's happening is about me. It's not about you or the other person, right? It's there. There might be the frustration, but it's because it's preventing me from accomplishing what I want to do. And again, talking about that kind of shame management system. If I've set out that these are the things I'm I'm wanting to accomplish and to to be productive and to achieve, and now that is being limited, then that's necessarily chipping away at the system I've I've erected to keep shame at bay, mm. and that's very un, uncomfortable. And so most of of what's going on, most of that dialogue is less about the the judgment of the other person um, that you know some of that may happen than it is about my own self and the fears that
3: rise in that moment wow i like that a lot and that that goes back to everything that you just said there you attribute richard roar to saying like one of the saddest places on the anagram is an unsuccessful three he Mm -hmm. says the saddest the saddest Uh and well as you're talking and now might be the good time to start talking about really diving into shame what a flawed system it seems to me of like threes with all right, we've got goals. You know, I love to bring Laura back up again. One of my favorite stories of all time about threes Uh that I'll play at the beginning of this podcast uh, when she talks about going on her honeymoon and she's like, we're on, we're at the most beautiful place in the world on the beach, and the sunset and the moon and whatever. And it's like night one of their, her honeymoon with her husband. She's so happy. And she goes, I think we should make some three, five and 10 year goals. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I love that story.
3: And he's a five. Yeah. So and, it will um,
4: be like, yeah, no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and so so having that uh, mentality, like I of a seven set goals, and if I don't hit them, I don't hit them. That's not going to. I'm going to sleep really well. But for threes who are part of the shame triad, mm-hmm. who are goal setters, who are doing this, like, like you said, like, oh, my gosh, move out of the way, people. I've got to do these things that I have set out to do. And to have that shame, it's just, that seems like such a tough spot to be in. (laughs) I know there's Uh, no question there. I just, I'm just saying, seems, that sucks. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, it's, it, it slows us down. And I would say where it would stay sad is if we just stay there in an unreflective way. What can move me out of that being sad and actually being a really generative generative opportunity is to say, why, you know, like reflect on why is this so hard for me? what am i what am i running from what am i um fleeing what am i afraid might come to the surface and that it's a moment to connect with my feelings and this has always been interesting for me because you know i'll read often that threes are really dis- disconnected from our feelings i think at least in part because of having a really strong four wing i've always felt I'm like a deeply feeling person to a i don't want to say to a fault but to a point where it can be paralyzing sometimes and I am really good at spotting a feeling coming and, and like down an assembly line and going, ah, that's coming. I don't have time for that right now. I'm going to put it there and I'll get to it later. I mean, I'm, I'm able to do that and and that's adaptive and it can be helpful sometimes, but um, also as we know, it can be really problematic when you do do only that for so long and, and really never get to it. But if instead I can take those moments and pause and why would this be so hard for me to, to have a different pacing or for this, you know, this, I thought this was the best way that I had had charted out and now, okay, this is a, this is a different option here. Maybe there's something for me to notice there. If I can stay in that reflective place of possibility then i get excited and it feels really hopeful if i can't do that and i'm just kind of dwelling in it then it gets to that really really sad uh, sad kind of paralyzing place i'm
4: fascinated by uh, the reality of orientation to time in this conversation did you think of that too absolutely yeah you're you're always oriented to where you're going and when i'm in shame i'm always oriented to where i am
0: mm-hmm
4: and it's just easier to sit in it for me than to see how it's interrupting my forward movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That anticipation of feelings that you talked about? Yeah, man. Is that any feeling? Uh, I mean just the whole the whole wheel?
2: That's a good question. I think so. Yeah, I can't think of one that would not but would not work within that. I mean it's uh I write about in the, in the book, cause this is part of how I've, I've, you know, made sense of and understood shame's role in my, in my life, but that because I needed to develop the shame management system that allowed me to be as productive and efficient as, as possible so that shame didn't have the chance to convince everybody what a bad and dirty little girl that I, I was convinced I was, um, I had to, I had to produce, I had to be efficient. I had to perform <clears throat> and there's no time for feelings in that they they're slow, they take time, you've got to sit in them and really process. And so uh, from an early age, I just had to um, kind of close that down for myself. The, The problem, though, is that, like, as I said, I have been such a deeply feeling person from a really young age. So what that did was I could shut them down for myself, like I could spot, okay, that's coming, shut it down for here. And then they came out sideways for everybody else. Right. I can't shut it down for somebody else. So if I'm in a in a even to this day, I'm in a space and I see somebody and the st- the story I tell myself based on whatever I'm seeing is that they're experiencing some sort of suffering or have endured some sort of trauma. You know, I can, I can tell a story to myself pretty quickly or or you read something and they're narrating that that's, that that's been the case. I can't shut that down. I'm overwhelmed by it immediately. So it's been very interesting to like to have these very extreme uh, extremes between those two and then to find what it looks like to have a little bit more of an equilibrium mm-hmm. uh, with, with those. And that, that has been a, a place of deeper and deeper health, I would say. Um, but interesting that, that they, um, they developed so differently within.
4: One of the things I'm, um, super impressed with about your work on yourself and your work in the world, it never occurred to me until you to say to people when I'm teaching shame, fear, and anger, which I'm doing Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, make a plan, like have a plan for how you're going to manage shame, fear, or anger. Acknowledging it isn't enough. And most of my suggestions, I think, I'll be listening this weekend as I teach to see, but I think most of my suggestions are about managing it here, which would make sense because my orientation to time is the present, instead of managing future shame as a result of this. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I've never thought of that. All I know is this whole wallowing in, I, I'm a terrible person and, you know, I'm adopted. Even my mother gave me away. Nobody wants, you know, all the stuff that I can get to in a heartbeat.
3: The phrase that popped in my head from last resort and other recovery stuff, like you, there's a relapse prevention plan. And then there's a plan for when you do relapse. Now, like, what are you going to do then? Yeah. And so there's that planning head that I think just has to work in tandem with then the present oriented space of now no. you are in it. Yeah. I, it's got to I think it has to be both.
4: Well, Mallory talked about being so overwhelmed in the moment with it. Mm. But she has a plan. But
3: got to have a plan, got yeah, out of the
4: She got a plan to get out of it mm. and I'm just overwhelmed in the moment. Yeah. Man, I got some work to do. <laughs> <laughs> you
3: you talked about uh curiosity, honesty, and courage. Yeah. Okay, everyone has heard um the Ted Lasso that scene of him playing darts uh, and talking about people not being curious. And I think, Mm -hmm. is it the Walt Whitman quote that is be curious, not judgmental or something like that? so along those lines. I feel like over the past, let's say decade or so, why is curiosity kind of like it's a word people are using more and more often. Why why was it not used in, why is it just now in my experience becoming a, Coming to the forefront.
4: Well, my generational response to that is um, because of um, the internet, so much curiosity can be fed and, and satisfied. When I was your age, I could be curious about things, but I couldn't get my phone out and get an answer. And I think answers create more curiosity which creates more potential answers and i think that's why people are so google dependent i'm having a little trouble with some hearing because i had COVID again it kind of landed in my ear and i uh have a doctor's appointment but andy stoker who teaches with us and works here his wife is megan is a nurse and i texted her and said oh my gosh i just googled COVID and hearing loss and it's terrible and she said do, do not all caps google just go see the ent <laughs> and and so i talk about the fact that i think there's a problem with satisfying curiosity by doing that little quick look up so you can move on as opposed to with the greater questions that aren't dictionary style how how can we Hold curiosity, almost like holding mystery, which I think we're no good at. To see what it has to teach us. That's probably all I have to offer about to answer your question.
2: Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned mystery there as well, because that's that's the lines in which I'm I'm thinking along it as well. And at, at risk of <laughs> um, you know, just giving this answer for everything. I could just say the patriarchy is the first word that comes to mind when I think about why why would we have been less comfortable with curiosity? Because we, we are in a culture that uh, overemphasizes rationalism and logic and understanding, and you, you, you're you supposed to have the, the answers. And it's uncomfortable to be in a place where with curiosity, you're saying, huh, I wonder about that, which necessarily means I don't know. There's a gap between, you know, this this um, uh, this incident that's happening and my understanding of it. And that's an uncomfortable space to be. And I think particularly for a lot of men conditioned to not allow for that that type of of gap. Uh, So that's one of the ways I think about it. So, yeah, as we as we continue to resist kind of those patriarchal norms for each of us, you know, for for all genders. Uh, we become, I think, more comfortable with that place of curiosity and not knowing the comfort that we can find there, the comfort in even in the the vulnerability, um, our ability to engage mystery that requires um, resisting so many of those norms, whether it's, you know, it's, it's patriarchy, or it's even colonialism. I mean, just you could, you can, I think, name any of those and say that truly, those systems do not allow for for mystery for wonder for for curiosity i think even i I write in the book like when when your mission is you're going to conquer and overthrow there's not a lot of room to go huh I'm noticing that this has happened. I'm noticing that this this feeling's coming up for me. I wonder what that's about. There's no time for that type of self reflection. You got to you got to get things done, right? You've got to you got to conquer. You've got to subdue. You've got to rule. And so I, I do think that's a that's at least part of it. And I'm grateful, as you you know you rightly observe, Joel, that I do hear that word more and more uh, often. And what I part of what I appreciate about it most is there's an implicit kindness to it. The sense of curiosity that i can extend to myself like uh, you know again a feeling or something happens you know i have that thought as i'm walking into the conference right and it's like huh that thought just came up i wonder what's behind that Mm -hmm. that's such a different starting point than the one i lived with for most of my life which was it the it was just shame uh and so the kindness i feel the difference of that kindness in my body when i start from a place of curiosity
3: I went with one of my daughters yesterday and saw the Barbie movie. I wondered if
4: that was going to be your next (laughs) thing.
3: Yeah. Once she started talking, once she said the word patriarchy, I was like, "Oh, literally yesterday I went and saw it. Have you seen it yet? Oh yeah. Okay. One, I think it, I think it was so great. Um, I can't tell how great it was yet. I got to reflect more and probably see it again. Yeah. Just when you said that, I was like, Oh yeah. I talked with my mom after the movie was over. We were, doing the driving to pick up all the kids from around the world. And, uh, I don't have, I understood then afterwards, I was like, I don't, I don't deal with shame very often. I just don't. But I do know the difference from the teaching of, uh, between guilt and shame about guilt is what you do. Shame is who you are. And I said, by that definition, like, yeah, I've got a little bit of shame being a middle, like an average middle-class white male. And I don't, Unlike the two of you, I acknowledged it as what it is. Like, yeah, that sucks, and I didn't beat myself up. I, you know, I went about my day. Mm-hmm. Um, you
4: did say to me though, you felt shame. You think for a, that it's a rare time for you to feel shame.
3: Yes, by definition, It's like all right. Shame is who you are. Well, I'm. I don't know. You just described the plot of the Barbie movie uh, when you were talking, Mallory. So that's that's where my head will be for the rest of the day. So.
4: One of the things that's very interesting about listening to this that came up for me is that Joe is so comfortable when people ask him a big question or a little question. He's just fine with saying, I don't know. I've asked him over and over, when somebody asks you a theological question that's really burning for them, and you just say, I don't know, you don't have any problem with that. You don't like say, I do know this. You don't add on to it. You just say, I don't know. Do you feel bad about that? And he said, well, no. <laughs> what? No.
3: Will y'all please talk some more about shame as we were getting ready for this conversation. Uh, and you mentioned chapter two of your book and went and read that. And I, I said to Suzanne, I was just like, you know, they're in the shame triad, mm-hmm. but we don't we talk about twos and fours all the time and shame. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we don't talk a lot about threes and shame in that relationship. And you've done such a phenomenal job so far, but now if y'all want to do a deep dive in into that and into your shame management and system mm-hmm. and everything.
4: Well, also in the book, Mallory, I'd like for you to talk about uh, your childhood friend because you have a line that you're using and I'm wanting to push back against it, but I'm letting it stay there because in, in my nature I don't want you to feel that but I, I think you're saying dirty little girl bad dirty what is the line that you feel like when you're kind of
2: yeah either bad or dirty mm-hmm. yeah
4: there is a, a foundational story in your life that hasn't from from my reading of your work uh, that taught you and is teaching you but that isn't bigger than it has to be when you're talking about being at your friend's house at five and on the floor plane would you tell that story and then talk about shame in relation to that then and now Mm
0: -hmm.
4: and you can say no if you want to but
2: oh i'm happy to talk about it but thank you for that my earliest memory of shame happened when i was five years old i was playing at a friend's house in kindergarten and she you know where the image is like we're just on the floor there's toys all around we're playing and then all of a sudden she had this stack of playboy magazines that were her dad's i don't know you know where she had found them necessarily i just remember they were there and I remember how curious I felt. I remember there was this interest, um, desire, even. And you know, it, it it tapped into something in me that I didn't understand. And I also knew, this this is bad. This is wrong. And I felt incredibly conflicted around those things. And then it was done. And I, I went home from the, you know, the play date, basically. That happened again several times, probably between the ages of five and 10 with a neighborhood friends. And, and similarly, if someone in the home had had pornography and it would come out at different times. And it was a same mix of very conflicting feelings of this intense interest, desire, curiosity. I want to know. I want to see also i'm not supposed to that's bad i'm bad and so that happened as i'm also then in a a religious subculture that was very shaming particularly shaming of bodies and sexuality and even more particularly shaming of women's bodies and sexuality so i had no, not only did I not have the appropriate developmental capacities at that time to make sense of what was happening in my body with what I was seeing, I, I didn't have any external systems to help me navigate that either. Except to say, shut it down. It's bad. It's wrong. You, you know, you, all you do is wait, and that's it. And and really, I mean, it was basically that that crass, if not if not more so, in in so many conversations within church and and so on. And so immediately I just felt really bad. I just felt I was this dirty little girl. And I knew I don't want anybody to know that I've seen this or particularly that I I was interested in it or that I liked it in any way that it did something to me or for me. And so I knew I can't tell anybody. And very quickly, I just realized, okay, you're in this alone. You're just going to have to figure out how to manage this. You can't tell anybody else about it. And that's where this, this manager self kind of, kind of came to be and developed and she took over. And it's really that part that connects for me so much with that three energy, because it was at the same time I'm in kindergarten and I'm doing well. I was faster than the other kids. I could get the activities done, you know, and, and, and the teachers would praise me that felt good. And I felt the difference between that in my body and the shame that I felt. And I thought, I want more of that and less of the other. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to keep doing the things that earn me this praise. And then I, I kept on that, that path really for another you know several decades. How can I achieve? How can I accomplish? How can I perform? And then that external orientation to say, I want to make sure that I am curating the way that other people perceive me mm-hmm. so that there's not a chance for them to see what's actually inside, which is again, this very um, bad little girl who's interested in, in pornography. Right. I really like, I got arrested basically internally at that, at that age, age five, really in so many ways. And, um, that's all I could, could kind of live, live from or live around, even, even though I wasn't aware of it in so many ways. And it was only later doing so much reflective work back to go, oh now i can trace the origin of this story and really understand it and then some of the you know contributing factors later particularly those larger shaming systems um and so you know so much of my work has just been the kind of the unraveling of that even just recently even just last week in in therapy doing another layer of entering into that, that place and connecting with that five-year-old self and even connecting with that moment. And I I imagined I could see it was like this, this big trunk. It was huge. It was kind of foreboding. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't want to go near there. I I know what's in there. It's it's supposed to stay, you know, under lock and key. We don't open that up. We don't tell anybody about it. And I can see that in the eyes of this five-year-old self, but I'm coming in as my true Herself self in that moment and able to enter into the space with a different knowing a different energy, and then walk with that five-year-old Mallory as she was willing to allow that to that trunk to open and to, to then peer into it and see there was just a few pictures on the, on the bottom of this trunk, right? It's this giant foreboding, looming thing. And there was just a few pictures there and realizing the outsized Um, presence and power that this experience that really came down to a few pictures had in my life uh, and then allowing her to be freed from that. And then even the moment where later continuing to walk with little Mallory and seeing that trunk shrink down to a more reasonable size she could hold in her hand and just kind of keep here at her chest and keep it open. And it was like it got to be right sized. That part still exists. That's part of my story, my experience. But instead of everything in my life being oriented around the shame management system, out, you know, upset because of that experience, yep, this is part of what's happened for me. And I can vulnerably tap into it and explore it and discuss it as a way of accessing my own self more fully. And as a way of engaging with other human beings in their own places of of vulnerability or or shame or whatever it may be. Mm
4: -hmm. It's really interesting because I I don't have a lot of childhood memories, but I do have some. I burned my hands uh, at 18 months and then I was in bandages for 18 months and I have some memories of that. But most of my memories that I do have start at five. And in the context of what you're saying, my story would be that uh, I was trying to uh, do the same thing, but different. I was trying to achieve my way beyond, yes, I'm adopted and Hmm. I can do all these things. I'm still adopted, but I can do these things. It is one of the things I'm working on right now in therapy as well because shame is creeping back in as I have to um, slow down a little and and do a little less. And it's saying, oh, you can't do it, huh? You can't. You should try harder. You should take this away so you can do that. And I think what we're both trying to say about shame, and it would be really interesting for you to chime in for a minute about fear, I think what we're both saying is it doesn't ever go away it it's all about how you can right size it to the entirety of your life and it's um you know this whole management idea i'm going i'm going to be journaling for the next 10 days on i'm i'm going to manage myself <laughs> because you've got all these management plans that work so well for you and they seem so accessible
2: and i love what you said I, the shame part doesn't ever go away, but I'm experiencing deeper integration with it. And like you named, it's this right sizing of it, and even this honoring of it. Because I, it, it ran my life for so long, and then I just got angry with it for a while. Because it's like you, you make everything so much harder for me. Even just a simple entering into a meeting with people, and I'm immediately sizing myself up. And how are they thinking about me? And oh, I just said that. And oh, I noticed maybe they didn't like that. And oh no. I mean, it's exhausting and I would just be angry with the shame and it, and it took time and work to really come to this place of honoring. Oh my gosh, of course you, you developed here. Like, of course, this was a response for this little self. Thank you for seeking to help and protect me in that way. So that even when, you know, often when I experience shame, it'll be in this very critical voice. Right. How, who are you to think you could do that? And I have to pause, lean into that curiosity. Like we talked about early and honor, ah, you're feeling triggered here in this moment because you want to keep me safe. You want to keep me small because that's a safer place to be mm-hmm. because there's a, more, there's a greater possibility of exposure, the bigger that I, or the thing gets, yeah. I see you. Thank you. And that's a different place of like honoring. And it's, it's, it's like, okay, it gets to go back in, in align with these other parts of myself, instead of being the primary, sometimes even the only one that really gets center stage in my life.
4: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I I was born in 1950 and I grew up in a community where everybody knew who I was, who my parents were, that I didn't have uh, shame for me was like a hologram. Mm. It wasn't a thing that came up. It was a thing other people brought up by telling me how lucky I was. You know, nobody was trying to shame me. And yet there's shame in being eight or ten and. Thinking, oh, oh, am I not acting lucky? Do I not know how? It's a very, very strange thing. Does fear work like that?
3: Well, my relationship with fear, I think, is different than y'all's relationship with shame. Like, that's what I love talking about. Like, it's always going to be there. Will the relationship to it change? Yeah. uh, And grow or whatever. With good
4: management, it will. (laughs) Uh, I'm a quick learner.
3: (laughs) I think, you know, you talk about for each number in the fear triad that how they treat fear is different. And with sevens that we ignore it or pretend yeah. like it's not there. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times outrun it, try to outrun it is the way I would talk about it instead of what you're saying, Mallory of like acknowledging it and like, Hey, this is coming up. I wonder why it's coming up. What's, what's really going on in this situation? what is, my body or my heart or what head trying to tell me. Um,
4: yeah. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to advertise this podcast this weekend. So, <laughs> yeah. so get it up there. So get it out.
3: That'll be <laughs> a, a quick turnaround. Um, I forget who it was. I think it was a four. And if it wasn't a four, then my second guess would be, it was Hunter maybe as a two, but they talked about shame and they used it. They, um, from Peanuts. Was it Linus? Was he the, was he the dirty one? Pigpen. Pigpen. Like and Pigpen just always had this cloud of dirt yep. and that's what they, the shame felt like for them was that there's just, it's always there. People kind of didn't acknowledge it, but it was always there with them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a good imagery.
4: Yeah, that is good. And it serves me well. There's two sides to everything. And you were talking about that a little bit. It's a, It's a good thing, too, to go, oh, I need to check that. Mm. I for sure was not going to the Barbie movie until everybody started saying, oh, my gosh, you have to see this movie. Because part of my work in the 1960s, in my teen years and early adult years, uh, I was trying to overcome that being the image that we're supposed to be. So my generation of women—we're talking about—we did everything we could to get rid of Barbie, and now our grandchildren are watching a movie, and I don't know about that, like it, a, an ignorant talk, granted, because we hadn't seen it. And there was, there were a lot of, there have been a lot of uh, narrow responses to descriptions by women my age and a little bit younger, to descriptions of God. That's a terrible sentence, but I hope everybody knows what I'm talking about. And I'm, first of all, taken with the fact that the title of your book is God Is, because uh, for female writers, there have been so many books that would have been titled God Isn't. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you so gently but effectively offer people an opportunity, men and women, to expand their understanding of the vastness and mystery of God is in my estimation, I don't want to use opinion because I think it's fairly informed thinking, in my estipa- in my way of seeing the world, um, I think people who need to hear it can hear it mm-hmm. in a way that they can't hear too much pushback around the mystery of god for all of us mm. i hope did that make any sense i hope so i'll
3: have to re-listen to it
4: <laughs> maybe not <laughs>
2: mallory do you know what i'm saying
4: <laughs> oh she's laughing no <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm laughing at Joel. um i think so i think so but are you saying um you're saying how, how I wrote it is a way that is inviting people into access this conversation in a way that is harder for, harder to access in the ways that it's framed in other, other places.
4: That's it, exactly.
2: The, the ways we think about God. I think my generation,
4: because of our time in the culture, pushed against and you are inviting people in. Because you're not saying God isn't. You're expanding an understanding by talking about God is. And it is gentle in a way that it doesn't threaten the way an older generation has related to who God is. In a time when there's so much deconstruction in in religious circles anyway. Yeah. It's um, I feel like you're um, serving creme brulee and it's nice and soft and easy and delicious. Mm-hmm. That's what I would would say it feels like to me. And you chose the perfect title, as far as I'm concerned, for your book.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Those are really kind words. I'm thinking about a conversation I had um, recently with a woman who was describing when she was in high school. And uh, she was um, on a, a a singing group in her high school. And they brought in this amazing vocal coach, which she really liked. And he was teaching them how to sing these Italian arias, basically in a very operatic style. And she was really concerned. And she told him, I like to sing in my black Baptist church. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that if I start doing the things you're telling me to do with my voice and my vocal cords, I'm going to lose that. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And she said that her vocal coach just said, is that how you think the voice works? No, you're not going to lose that. The voice expands. Mm -hmm. And it makes room for this new way of being and this new way of performing and singing. All you are do is tapping into and accessing the more. It will be the language I'm going to use. That's one of the ways that I, I will describe God. The name for God is the more. And that's really what it is about for me. Yes, there are things I think we need to leave behind in the ways we have thought about God. Certainly, there are plenty of things that we could say that was problematic. That was unhelpful. Let's let's leave that behind. Mm-hmm. But there's so much to still include. And even as I name, here's an array of feminine language and imagery for, for the divine. And here's ways for us to access that and our understanding of God and then ourselves. It doesn't mean that when you had this really beautiful encounter where you were imaging, consciously or unconsciously, you were imaging God as father, let's say. It doesn't mean that that's any less real. Right. It only means it was one among many ways right. of engaging and approaching and understanding God and yourself and so that and that's truly how i how i think about it it is not a pendulum swing to say it's only been this way let's get rid of that one and move it towards the other because that's not helpful for anybody there are some points i think to prophetically critique again ways that a that masculine language and imagery for for the divine have have um had far too much of a center stage to the detriment of all of us men women everybody included there are there are right words to to or critiques to level and i i do offer some of that in the book. But my point is to say, that's actually harmful for all of us, regardless of how you identify, regardless of what your body looks like, regardless of how you take up space in this world. The reality is that there is more to you and there is more to God. Why would we not want to access that? And to me, in my experience of continuing to grow and evolve and expand in my own understanding of self, that has always been accompanied with a growing and evolving, expanding understanding of God. I, I talk about them like two waves that move together kind of in the sea. They are distinct, but they're part of the same the same larger space here, right? And I don't know how to separate those. And, I, and I'm I'm not really interested in, in doing so. So how can I enter into access the more of the divine and in doing so, access the more of my own self? Right, right.
4: Richard Rohr is one of my mentors, the main mentor in my life. And he says, uh, if you can describe it, it isn't God.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And I think that's his effort to say, oh, no, it's so much more. God is so much more the holy one is so much more and the capacity for that is unending and it it if offered gently and held loosely many more people can access it which Mm -hmm. is what i am attempting to effectively uh, compliment you on
2: thank you you know, I'm thinking about this connection to an earlier part of our conversation, where with curiosity you get a, you see that there's actually a space between the moment or the stimuli and then the response, mm-hmm. right? And similarly here, I find for a lot of people, they conflate their understandings or beliefs about God with God. There's no daylight between those two; are right. one and the same. Mm-hmm. So if you start talking about their understandings or beliefs or even experiences of God, they think that what you're actually talking about is just God. Because they've always conflated those two and seen them as one and the same. And it's really helpful if we're able to just help folks get a little distance between those two. I use in the book the the Buddhist image that I know Richard talks about a lot, but that image of the finger pointing to the moon. The finger is not the moon. They are different things. And if I can start with that, it's not to say, well, it's not the moon, therefore stop talking. Stop describing it. Stop saying see and experience. No, it is to say that we need a more abundant group of people and diverse group of people with their fingers pointing at that moon saying, Oh, here's what I see. And when I turn this way, here's what I notice. And I want to be committed to that work. And I want to be committed, committed to um, being close enough to other people that I can overhear the ways that they describe when they have their finger thrust in the air, pointing at the moon saying, this is too too marvelous and mysterious and wonderful for us, and let that never keep us from from trying to say something about it right right.
4: i I have two complaints about the church, the whole thing, all, all denominations, everybody. Um, and one is that we've not been taught how to grieve, but the other is that we've not been taught how to hold mystery. Mm-hmm. And the only way I can imagine that we can hold mystery effectively it is to make space for it to be far bigger than we can even imagine Mm -hmm. because then we don't have to figure things out. There's not a destination to get to. It's all just a journey. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: If I read your book and I didn't know what number you are, I would not choose three. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: I would not say, Oh, I think this book was written by three However, it is written by a 3 who didn't cut corners in imagination or uh offering space, great big space. Mm-hmm. And it's not an efficient book. Yeah, because it doesn't answer questions, but it creates more curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're all curious, then it's safer to be honest as opposed to the settings where we have to act like we have an answer for something. So I, I just think it's a, I'm glad we're doing the podcast and that we can talk about the book and that we can hear you talk about curiosity and all the integrity that you demonstrate in all that you're talking about.
3: Well, I'm curious about something. (laughs) Uh, One of the, like spiritual tools that you said that uh, you practice? Imaginative prayer. I don't know what that is. Will you? And it sounds awesome. So, so I want to know.
2: Yeah. You know, th- this can take a number of different forms, but at minimum, I want to say that I think for a lot of folks, we're conditioned to believe that the imagination is a really dangerous space. It's a place we're not supposed to go. And I want to. Also caveat that to say that for some of us it has been problematic. Maybe we've overly, you know, hid there or it's it it has been um, it, it, it's brought up some difficult things for us. So I, I want to allow that for for folks. And just to say in a very general way, that I'm really sad that that as kids, each and every one of us has this incredible capacity to imagine and at some point, we forget about it. And so for me, this practice is is a remembering. It's not necessarily adding something new. It is just remembering what I already and always have known, which is my mind allows me to imagine, to see things, in in this space that I don't see necessarily in front of me. And then that doesn't make them any less true. And then my imagination, just like in the act of empathy, where I'm able to imagine what another person experiences and have this human connection, and that, that that's an expansive and really powerful moment for me that similarly, this is a space where I can connect with with God and have beautiful experiences, so it might be something as simple as just um, in my prayers, allowing my mind to uh, to wander to different images and just letting them unfold. Or it might it might mean taking a particular sacred text and entering in it to imaginatively. So, for instance, I was preaching at a church in a few weeks ago. And before I said anything about the text, I wanted to do an imaginative prayer exercise. So I read the text three different times and just kind of set the scene and invited folks, you know, enter into it with your senses. We're not in the realm of right or wrong here. We're just in what is. And that alone is is so different than the way we're taught to to engage with sacred text right you're trying to figure out the right way to think about this in your imagination that option doesn't exist we get to just enter into and explore and see what comes up hold it with curiosity hold it with wonder and and see what there is to see and so most folks it takes a little bit of kind of scene setting there but then they're able to get into it And what they experience in that moment is so different and um, and fuller than if I just start with, here's my thought about this text, and I'm going to tell it to you and give it to you, right? And And then even when they are able to tell me, ah, I was sensing something similar, but I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have allowed myself to have that thought about this text or about what Jesus is saying or about faith or whatever, But then if I start there first in this imaginative space and Jesus approaches me and says this thing there, then now all of a sudden I'm exploring the text in a much fuller and bigger and different way. And even as I'm saying that, I can imagine certain people who are really would prefer to keep a status quo of many systems, they're uncomfortable with that type of, of exploration, right? And, and that's why practices like this are not often commonly held. And yet I'm grateful that there is, continues to be more of a push towards these contemplative postures uh, because it, it's just been essential for me and, and really being willing to, in my own practice, as well as when I'm holding space for folks, for instance, in spiritual direction, to just allow them to notice, hey, what are you noticing this moment? And that might be a body sensation. It might be almost like a word that they hear or something. And oftentimes it's, it's a picture. I'm, I'm, I'm Something comes up, great, let's enter into that more fully and allow it to unfold and take us where it wants to take us. There's something here, there's a message here that wants us to explore it more fully. Let's do that freely and honestly. And it's not that you do it without any guardrails, right? You come back from that and you go, okay, so let's discern it together you know, let's say in that imagination, a critical voice comes up. That doesn't mean that we say, oh, well then it was right. You know, you're supposed to believe that critical voice, but rather it gave us a space to go, it came up. So what was going on for me in that, in that moment? And you still continue to, you know, to engage it with discernment and wisdom and thought and in, and in community, but it's just a, I'm thinking about the Rumi quote that says out beyond the field of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. It's one of my favorite quotes, and that's why I think about the imagination. It gets me past the right-doing and wrong-doing kind of dichotomy and moves me into a fuller space that I get to play and explore and know myself and the divine so much more fully.
4: Yeah, I have a couple of things. I, uh, I'm uh, Joe and I are working with some churches in our denomination over a couple of years, and uh, we're just starting. And I'm aware as we are beginning this work that I've been saying for a very long time. If we're going to be affected, affected by worship, it is going to have to speak to people who are thinking dominant, feeling dominant, and doing dominant. And it's going to have to offer an opportunity for people to bring up feeling, bring up thinking, and bring up doing. And everything you described does that. Mm-hmm. and we're losing participation when we when everything is a head trip because mm-hmm. there are people who don't that's not their way of seeing and so they're present but they're not present
0: mm-hmm.
4: so i i really appreciate all of that and i would say that my contemplative practice has added the most to my journey of anything I've ever done on a regular basis. Of course, Joe and the children and grandchildren are are more than that, but it's it it makes space. You talk a lot about space and it makes space, I think. So, how, how what about your way of your imagination is pretty great. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say. because we're,
3: we're up against the time-wise
4: Okay, one more thing I want to say. And it is that um, you were saying it's not bad. Mm-hmm. And a voice may come up and it's not bad. Let's explore that. I bet I've had 25 people, one's on the Enneagram, tell me after they've heard me teach about the critic or the critical voice that they thought that was the Holy Spirit. They mm-hmm. lived their whole lives thinking that was the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. That's that makes me very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Sad, sad. Yeah. Agreed. What you got?
3: I got I got nothing. We're
4: we're done. We have to wrap up. It's wrap up time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mallory, for such a for such an inviting book
2: Mm -hmm. into mystery. Thank you friends. This has been a lovely conversation and I'm grateful for for your work in the world and for our time together today. So thank you. Right back at you.
3: Looking forward to hanging out again.
2: Thank you for listening. Here's a clip from the next episode of the Enneagram Journey.
0: I can't I won't speak for all ones, but I'll speak for myself that the inability to accept my errors or to admit fault, somehow always came coupled with this expectation that it means my job and life are now over. Mm. If I have to admit that I did something wrong Mm -hmm. or that I didn't complete something the way it was supposed to be done, I should just assume that I'm going to be let go. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I can never admit that I'm wrong (laughs) or didn't do it the right way. And so, you know, we talked earlier about those release valves. These are these really unhealthy release valves that the pressure is too strong on myself. So I've got to vent it on someone else. And so let's displace it on this other person who surely also did something wrong here.